Revelation chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise for ever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God, who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Good morning, everyone. In case you're new or visiting and we haven't met, my name's Ben. I'm one of the ministers within our parish. Welcome to our fellowship this morning. Uh, I just kind of rocked up because I had the uh, privilege of speaking at one of our other congregations at Gregory Hills, uh, so that's why I've uh, just rocked up right about now. Uh, 
Please do keep your Bibles open at Revelation chapter 14, uh, which I'll be speaking from, and, uh, but I'll also have the words from the Scriptures up on the screen as we go as well. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll get into it together. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks to us and you speak to us in your word, the Scriptures. Please uh, uh, prepare us now, Father, uh, that we would not be hardened against what it is that you'd have us learn but that we delight to have your word shape and mould us, to permeate our hearts and minds so that we might become more like your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray it in his name. Amen. One of my favourite things about the Christian life is that contrary to popular belief, I'm not instructed to do good and to obey God in order that I might be saved on the final day of judgment. That's not how it is, no. I'm motivated to do good and to obey God precisely because I've already been saved from that final day of judgment. I'm going to be fine on the day of judgment, not because of anything I've done, not because of anything good about me, but because of God's great love and mercy He has given me the gift of salvation in Jesus. And because of that fact, it is my joy and delight to serve him, to obey him. I don't serve him to pay off a debt. I serve him because Jesus has already paid it all. God affirms that this is true for all Christians Here's one of my favourite parts of God's word. This is God speaking, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. For the grace, that's the undeserved gift, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. Notice it's not the day of judgment. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people for his very own, eager to do what is good. The grace of God, the gift, him giving us the free gift of salvation, that is the thing that motivates us to live a godly life, to say no to sin, to be eager to do what is good. But... Is God's grace the only motivation for godly living? Does the fact that God is pouring out his wrath upon sinners and that he'll continue to do so and in a final way on the last day, does that somehow also provide motivation for Christians to keep obeying Jesus? Well, it might seem a bit counterintuitive not to mention rather negative, to think that the hell we Christians won't have to experience is somehow something that also helps us stay on the right path. But the scriptures are written for Christians and the book of Revelation in particular, as we've seen, has been written to bless us and it has a lot to say about the wrath of God that will become, uh, and what will become of unrepentant sinners. It has a lot to say about the person and work of Satan and of the horror of God's final and eternal judgment. So it's fair to ask that, 
Whilst the grace of God clearly motivates us to keep living for Jesus, is it also the case that the wrath of God is to be something that motivates us too? Well, that's an issue that gets addressed in Revelation chapter 14, uh, so we're about to find out. But before we get into it, I realise we're a little bit over halfway through this uh, parish-wide um, series in the book of Revelation, so I thought it might be helpful to give us all a super quick recap, and I mean super quick, uh, on where we've been so far. Here we go. At the beginning of Revelation, we learn that we'll be blessed because we're given the uh, uh, God's view of world history, past, present and future. We see God's perspective, so we, we learn the truth of how things really are. Jesus shows the church what we are currently like, the really good stuff, like persevering despite persecution, hating false teaching, exercising great discernment, overcoming adversity because of our sure hope of heaven, etc., that's in chapters 2 and 3, where he also shows the church the stuff we do really badly, like thinking that wealth equals Christian success, or forgetting our love for God and for one another, or for failing to reject false teaching, etc. Following that, as we move on in Revelation, we've seen what it looks like in the throne room of heaven. Jesus is seated on the throne of the only holy creator God. And we learn that he is worthy of the same worship as God because he has purchased the church by his blood and he stands at the centre of world history and determines the sure future. Following that, we get a number of what I've called camera angles of our world from the heavenly perspective, what was, what is, and what must soon take place. These camera angles come as visions, as signs with symbolic language. We had the seven seals and then we had the seven trumpets and both times there's this interruption between the sixth and the seventh to enable more people to hear the gospel and be saved. Then we learn, a couple of weeks back, about the person and work of Satan so that we're forewarned and forearmed. We know that on account of his defeat... His mission is to get man-made religion and teaching to mimic the truth that God has given us. He gives us 666, which is very close to 777. It kind of looks like it's right, but it's, in the end, it's simply the number of man rather than God. Christians are therefore commanded to exercise wisdom and discernment, to calculate the number of the beast, to make sure we're on the side of truth rather than the side of man-made religion that looks very much like the truth. And so it kind of makes sense that the next camera angle, the next sign slash vision that we're presented with, or that John is presented with, contains reminders that God is actually faithful to his people and that the gospel proclamation still is the task at hand. And it also gives us motivation to endure and persevere, even though there's this crazy uh, sort of both, both physical and spiritual stuff that stands opposed to us. And we begin with a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. And it's a wonderful reminder. I hope you delight in it. Chapter 14 and verse 1 is where we begin. Then I looked, says John, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. If you remember all the way back to chapter 7, the 144,000 is a symbolic number of the people of Israel, people from all the tribes of Israel. God has been absolutely faithful to his promise that he would save an entire nation of Israelites. So if you're a Gentile, you can rest assured that 
Well, God can keep his promise to them. He can definitely keep his promise to you. Even though in the time of the New Testament, it looked like Israel, generally speaking, had rejected Christ. How are these 144,000 going? We haven't seen them since uh, chapter 7. What are they doing now? Well, verse 2. Then I heard the sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was uh, like that of harpers playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before uh, the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So just like we saw in that wonderful throne, uh, throne room scene, chapters uh, 4 and 5, just like with the elders and the living creatures, these redeemed people are praising God in his true temple. Uh, we're probably supposed to be reminded of Psalm 33, which celebrates the faithfulness of God to those he has saved. Let me show you the beginning of Psalm 33. It'll be on the screen. It says, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. See the parallels between what's going on there and, and what's going on here. Uh, the new song, probably you've got, got to sing it because he's been faithful to you and you're saved. So these are the saved people. That's why they sing the new song with the harps. And there's a lot of them, hence the noises like thunder. So despite all the satanic deceptions out there that we've just uh, come out of hearing in, in 12 and 13, despite all the man-made religions that, that seek us to, to, to stop us trusting in Jesus, despite all the worldly oppos- opposition to Jesus like we saw in, in chapter 11, God's people can rest assured that he remains faithful and will bring his people safe into eternity. We will sing that new song. And then we get this brilliant description how God views those, the heavenly perspective, what God sees when he looks at those who are redeemed. And it's verse 4. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, they were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. What a wonderful picture, except for the fact that we're probably a little bit confused or tripped up when it says they didn't defile themselves with women. Not least of all, because it, I don't know, can kind of like make it sound like only men are there or something, like only men are in heaven, or, or perhaps any kind of sexual activity with women somehow precludes people from entering. Well, obviously, both those ideas are, are, are rubbish and they're rejected all over the place elsewhere in scripture but I think what's happening here is simply another old testament illusion of which there are so many in revelation and it makes an easy point remember when God's people were in slavery in Egypt and they did hard time it was a hardship and then there was the 10 plagues the judgment of God and they come out and they were finally prepared to meet with the God who had rescued them and they'd been faithful to him they kept the Passover and they'd been rescued well Uh, in that instance, when God was going to come on Mount Sinai, they were actually commanded very temporarily to abstain from sexual relations. Just for two days, I think it was, on the third day it was going to appear. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 19. And the literal Hebrew phrase is, don't go near a woman. So it's like a, a polite, euphemistic way of saying it. And it was probably an idiomatic way of speaking to both men and women to say, oi, next two days, no sex. So the idea is that these people have obeyed God's word and therefore they've been prepared to meet with him. They've come out of the great difficulty. And for them, it's even better than meeting at Mount Sinai because that that was terrifying. That was the smoke and the trumpet. Verse 1 here, they're meeting with him at Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem where you 
find rest and peace with God. It's a wonderful picture. To sum it up simply, these verses are saying that if you're in Christ, God views you as completely pure and blameless. And you therefore will be one of those gathered in his eternal heaven and God remains faithful to his word to do that for you no matter what. It's a very assuring part of the scriptures. But of course, it's not just people from the tribes of Israel who will be in heaven. It's people from all nations, all tribes, all languages who will be saved on the last day. And so again, we're reminded that the delay between Jesus' first and second coming is given so that the gospel can continue to go out into all the world and people have a chance to repent and find forgiveness in Christ. So verse 6, and I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the, etern- the eternal, notice not as a gospel, it's the eternal gospel, there's only one. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. There's the gospel, by the way. Fear God, give him glory. He's the creator. Worship him. Now, to understand this part of God's word, I think is reasonably straightforward. As as long as God holds off the final judgment, even though figuratively speaking, we're, we're in the last hour, well, as long as he's holding it off, the purpose is that more people hear the gospel and repent. We've seen this a number of times now in Revelation. Just like there's a countable, figuratively, a countable number of Israelites, 144,000, well, so too God plans that an uncountable and innumerable multitude of people from all tribes, nations and language will be saved through the preaching of that same eternal gospel. We saw that in chapter 7. So if we are God's people, we desire... And therefore work toward that same end. We're on God's wavelength. And every Christian, therefore, is an evangelist. And it so happens that this coming term, I don't know if this has been announced yet or not, but if not, spoiler, this coming term, we're actually doing a church-wide evangelism training program in all our growth groups so that we're all better equipped to share the good news of Jesus with our friends and neighbours. So in a way, it's kind of, I can be a bit lazy. Application, this part of word, really easy. Just show up a growth group for the rest of the term. Learn evangelism. And with that, we come to the main section of our chapter, which happens to be the bulk of the chapter from verse 8 through to verse 20. And it is made abundantly clear that what's written here is written to motivate Christians to continue following Jesus to the end, to persevere to endure as followers of Jesus. It begins, perhaps strangely, by announcing the destruction of Babylon. Verse 8, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Again, another classic Old Testament glasses moment. If the Tower of Babel which you can read about in Genesis 11. If the Tower of Babel represented humanity united in rebellion against God, well, then the city of Babel, that is Babylon, stands for all human pride and power that by nature is exercised in defiance of God. It represents the thing that holds God's people captive and tries to get them to conform to its godless pagan culture and ideology. 
just like the prophet Daniel with his mates Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, were pressured by the king of Babylon to conform to their pagan world, to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols. Just as the church is made up of people who have the seal of God on their foreheads, figuratively, and who worship Jesus, so the figurative Babylon is made up of people who have the mark of the beast on their foreheads and worship Satan. Uh, We saw this a couple of weeks ago. All non-Christians, whether knowingly or not, are in fact worshippers of Satan and are destined for hell. And so, verse 9, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Now, I know there's this popular idea that you see in movies and stuff that Satan is in charge of hell, like he's the big red scary guy with the tail and the pitchfork, right? And he he supervises and dishes out all the punishment to the poor souls who are suffering in hell. Popular idea, thoroughly unbiblical, because in reality, Satan is defeated. He too will be suffering. And the Lord of hell is the one who is the Lord of all things. That is Jesus. So notice that those who suffer there will suffer in the presence of Jesus. Hell is not the absence of God's presence. It's far worse than that. It is the closeness of God's presence where his righteous fury is poured out upon all those who refused to repent. Now, personally, I'm pretty uncomfortable thinking, let alone speaking, about the suffering uh, in hell. Yet God, in his word, which is only ever for our good, wants to highlight for us the dreadful reality that hell is. And so we have verse 11. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name, i.e. anyone who's not a Christian. Remember, this book is written for Christians. Its design is to bless those who read it. Why would the dreadful reality of hell be paraded so boldly before us here? If you'd asked me that question before I'd read on any further, my natural answer would be it's probably here so that it drives us to be really passionate about telling people the gospel because it's only in Jesus, that people can avoid such a horrible thing. And regarding many parts of the New Testament, that's a biblical response, but it's not what happens here. It's not where the Bible goes at this point. Verse 12, I think, is the key verse for our chapter, and it makes it clear why we're being told about the dreadful, horrible reality of judgment and hell for unbelievers. Verse 12, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. This, that is, the reality that God will pour out his righteous fury upon the unrepentant who will suffer for eternity, this calls for patient endurance for the people of God. This reality of eternal damnation 
is something God tells us he's saved people all about to help us continue in faithful obedience to Jesus, to endure the hardships that following Jesus brings. It will help us, firstly, because we know it's the precise opposite of what we will experience. Uh, Verse 13, then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, that's super important, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour for their deeds will follow them. See, knowing what you're saved from makes you appreciate just how good things are in Christ. No matter how much difficulty and persecution the Babylon that we live in might want to throw at us. In fact, I think this is the main point of Revelation 14. God's coming wrath motivates Christians to patient endurance. Remembering what it is that we are saved from will help us persevere. In the end, there will be no rest for the people who worship the beast, whereas there will be eternal rest promised by Jesus and therefore, if promised by Jesus, by the voice of the Holy Spirit for those whose deeds clearly demonstrate they've received the gift of salvation in Christ. Now, by the way, just a short little aside on on something where the Word of God sort of uh, strikes me personally just at this point. Uh, I know there can be times where, as Christians, we do small things or big things in the service of others where we don't get noticed or we don't get thanked or we don't get acknowledged. Sometimes that can be a little bit hard. But rest assured that whilst our sins won't be remembered our good deeds, we are told, will follow us. God knows and notices the good that we do on account of following Jesus. And the day will come where we will be so thankful that we got on with serving others, even when there wasn't any thanks or acknowledgement. Now, if I... Ben, if this was the book of Ben, if I was writing this part of the Bible, to me, this would be the appropriate place to finish until the next vision, right? We'll finish this section, go on. But friends, I've got to say, Jesus wants us to know and appreciate the horror of the final day even more. Because like the good shepherd he is, he does a thorough job of ensuring that his sheep have all the motivation they can possibly get to endure. So here, right at the end of this particular vision, as has been the case a few times already, we get a bit more information about the final judgment, the the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet kind of thing. And the angle that we get this time is that the final judgment is like a harvest, two harvests actually, harvesting the good stuff and bringing it into the barn and then harvesting the stuff that's designed to be trampled on. Verse 14 I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Now, given that the pattern so far, both in this chapter and broadly in Revelation, has been to kind of focus on those who are saved and then to focus on those who are judged, I think it's right to assume that this first harvest of the two uh, is the harvest of the righteous. Jesus 
will gather to himself all who are his own. Notice it's the Son of Man on the cloud. Well, that's a picture of Jesus. He's the one doing the harvesting. Jesus himself is the one gathering his blameless followers, which is kind of wonderful and comforting. When this day comes or when you meet him, he'll be the one that kind of takes you. You'll see your Lord. But in the second harvest, you can feel the ominous distance of Jesus as it's his angels who harvest all the unrepentant to deliver them over to God, who will then trample them in judgment. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle over the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, a bit more than here to Melbourne. Obviously, this is picture language, but the point is painfully clear. Once that final harvest happens, there are only two possible outcomes. It's not like... There's the first harvest and then there's some inexplicable bunch of extra time for the wicked people to repent and then comes the second harvest. No. That that theory is floating around. I can see why it's popular, but that's not what he... If Jesus swings that first sickle tonight, then tonight the second sickle will also be swung and sinners will find themselves face-to-face with the God who is rightfully furious that even though he'd given his one and only son to pay for their smug rebellion against him, they remained stubbornly, in cowardly unrepentance. I don't know everyone here, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you've never really turned and repented to live with Jesus as the Lord of your life, don't wait until it's too late. If you've been a Christian really in name only, and you know it, become one, not just with words, but with your whole life. Sell out 100% to Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Give over your life to follow him. If you want to learn more about doing that, there's a box that's on your communication cards basically every week. I want to find out more about Jesus. Have Ben or Jono or someone contact me. Fill that out. By way of implication, it's important that the doctrine of hell factors into our thinking as Christians, who are disciples and therefore learners. And though, as we've seen here, the main thrust is there's actually to to help us endure, to know what we're not going to receive, well, part of persevering in obedience to Christ involves speaking the gospel message to others And therefore, having a sound doctrine of hell is actually important for evangelism as well as motivating you towards godliness. Uh, In the United States, earlier this year, it was uh, late January, there was a Christian conference put on for for university students where a number of internationally renowned Christian speakers gave talks. Uh, At the end, there was a panel discussion time, as is often the case at, at conferences, And there's a guy called Kevin DeYoung. Anyone ever heard of Kevin DeYoung? Yeah. 
Uh, he was asked about the doctrine of hell. By the way, Kevin Young wrote this cool kids' Bible that's kind of like biblical theology. I keep forgetting what it's called, which is embarrassing because I read it to my kids frequently. Anyway, it's a cool Bible, Kevin Young's Bible. God's Bible, right? Kevin Young's Bible. <laughs> anyway, at this conference, Kevin Young was asked a question about the doctrine of hell. How important is it? What should be our thinking on it as, as Christians? And I happened to get an audio transcript of his response, uh, which really is a bit of a hand grenade. Let me read it for you. So the question is, what do you reckon about the doctrine of hell? How, is imp- how important is it? Here's, here's the transcript of his response. I quote, The doctrine of hell is the ballast in our boat that keeps us from capsizing, keeps us from wavering and being tossed to and fro. Some of you here are inclusivists. You don't even know that term and you didn't even study it. It's just the air that you breathe. It's what you think. It's not the good sort of we include people, but the theologically inclusivist. It means you believe that people who never hear of Christ and never have the opportunity to respond to Christ will go to heaven because of the good that they have done or perhaps the light that they have followed, or perhaps they have known Christ without knowing that they know Christ, some sort of anonymous Christianity. That is rampant among people of all ages in our churches. Even the great C.S. Lewis teaches that in mere Christianity. And you see it at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a worshipper of Tash, but really he was a worshipper of Aslan without realising it. Not only is that mistaken with all of the verses from the Great Commission through to Romans 10. It's mistaken with our doctrine of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit does not work indiscriminately to save people apart from throwing a spotlight on the glory of Jesus Christ. End quote. Part of me wanted to just drop that bomb and leave it, eh? He's got a point. Um, If you're in this room, you have greater health and wealth than the majority of people in the world and the majority of people throughout human history. How are we so structuring our lives to ensure that the gospel message, the one thing, that saves sinners from the fury of God being given the priority that it should have? How often does it occur to us that we should reduce or quit our careers or change them so as to earn less but to have more time to speak the good news of Jesus to others? How often does it occur to us to think the house we live in, the car we drive, are all choices that need to be subservient to the notion that one of the reasons God has kept me alive is so that I can help other people avoid hell by speaking the gospel. Finally, last implication is that we're right to fear God. The Bible says it all the way, you know, like the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, uh, You read in Proverbs 1. Proverbs 8, Proverbs 1, probably both. Proverbs 1, 8. Anyway, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
But there's a difference between terrified fear that the unrepentant will, will face and what, what I call Christian fear, or, or the word I've uh, sort of seconded, reverential fear. And it is part of our motivation toward godliness. The grace of God makes me want to serve him in joy and love. And the fear of God ought to motivate me to serve him in love. Uh, don't take it from me, take it from Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, the last thing I'll, I'll say. Jesus teaches us, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If we're in Christ, we will never face that fury of God on the last day. But it's possible to live in that wonderful, extremely good knowledge and state and at the same time to recognise that our loving Heavenly Father is holy and righteous and he will rightly vent that fury upon those who are unrepentant, who he's given his son to, to pay the price of sin and they've, they've, they've rejected him. Uh, live in the reverential fear of the Lord. Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that as our loving Heavenly Father, you tell us all that we need in your word and you give us every motivation to persevere in Christ. We thank you for your incredible grace that sinners like us who deserve hell are the people that you chose to turn us in repentance, that, that Christ shed his blood to take the punishment we deserve for and that you now give us the wonderful joy and privilege of living in service of you and therefore in service of one another. Father, we uh, find it very difficult to hear about the reality of hell and judgment. But we thank you that as a good and loving Heavenly Father, you speak to us what is best and for our good. And Father, we pray that we'd snap out of our comfort and often our stupidity and not using the wonderful and abundant gifts you've given us to do all that we can to see more people avoid it. And Father, may we have a right and reverential fear of you and may that motivate us to love and good deeds and to say no to sin. For we recognise you as the holy and just God who is right to punish sin. And Father, we pray that you work powerfully in our hearts by your Holy Spirit, that we will be recognised as people who know the grace of God and the fear of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.